It's all about reducing barriers to entry. It's all about making it easier for folks to getting started. If you want to get into writing code, and even as a seasoned, experienced programmer, you still need to go through all the faff of setting up your tools. And reducing that friction, that's the common theme here. Welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is Dr. Chris Vaiho, Chief Architect at Gitpod. Chris, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah, my name's Chris. I'm based in, in the north of Germany, just south of the Danish border. been with Gitpod pretty much since, uh, yeah, pretty much since day one. Um, when we're still sort of bootstrapping out of a consulting business, been enjoying the ride. It's been wonderful so far and always happy to talk about Gitpod. I just saw that you got promoted to CTO. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Maybe we can talk about Gitpod a little bit at first. So can mm-hmm. you just give us the elevator pitch? What is Gitpod and why might developers want to use it? Yeah. So Gitpod takes the pain and effort away from getting to code. So it is sort of the logical next step now that we're making everything as code. You know, we made infrastructure as code. We we have automation all around us except for our development environments. So when you join a new project or you want to contribute to an open source project, you onboard on a company, what you're given is a probably outdated readme file that you go through and you'll spend the next three days trying to find some strange version of a tool or just trying to get up and running. And what Gitpod allows you to do is to spin up a new dev environment pretty much for every task you want to work on. And it's already configured. It has a yarn already downloaded the internet. Your unit tests have already run uh, and you're just ready to go. So it's all about automating dev environments, taking the friction out of, you know, I want to work on this task. I want to review this PR and getting, getting to do it. That's interesting. So it's like fully set up, like you don't even have to run npm install, like all the modules already right there. That's it. So you can configure basically which tasks you would like to run um, when when a workspace starts. And then those tasks will be executed on workspace start. You can even take a step before that and do what we call pre-builds, which you can think of like a CI system. You can figure the tasks you want running. Whenever a change happens in your repository, Gitport will, will be notified run those tasks, store a snapshot of the outcome, and make that available to you when the workspace starts. So not only do you not have to manually type NPM, but that will have already been executed in the past, and you just you know reap the rewards of that, and you don't have to wait for that to happen or deal with potential networking issues because uh, something is down. It's just there. So it seems like that could even have the potential to replace like your CI altogether. Like it's, it kind of feels like you're doing it twice if you're setting up both your workspace and your CI to do the same thing. Is Does Gitpod kind of help you do that too? So there, there's a lot of overlap. So we're, we're not aiming to replace the CI, but rather, and this is a sort of a core philosophy at Gitpod, we try and be orthogonal to stuff. Like we don't want to impose how you work, but we want you to be able to bring how you work to us. And so, um, you know, your CI system will probably run off of a Docker image already. Pretty much everything's containerized anyway. So you might as well use the image that you use for your CI builds in your local dev environments. And that brings a host of benefits where you don't have version mismatch anymore between what you use locally, quote unquote, um, 
and what, what your CI system runs, for example, and you only have to do that setup once and also only one, you know, you only have to maintain it once. Like it's not just a, that the setup effort is reduced to one environment, but also, um, you keep this in, in your version control, you evolve it alongside. And so not everyone has to go jump through those hoops again. So to paint a little bit of a, a more clear visual picture for our listeners, you when you come into a Gitpod workspace, it is a VS Code-like setup in your browser that already has your entire execution environment set up. And, and as you said, like using the same potential Docker image or whatever you're using to sort of like configure your environment. So you've got everything you need to just start working on something. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, you go to something like GitHub to your repository that you want to start working on. Same works with GitLab and Bitbucket. And you put gitpod.io slash hash in front of that URL in your browser, hit return, and then that environment will come up. If there is no configuration in there, we'll, we'll take a good guess at, you know, what, what configuration might look like. And we'll give you a default image that uh, supports a lot of things out there. And then from there on, you can configure this. Um, we also, uh, we're implementing an, an onboarding flow that makes this configuration bit even easier and sort of puts it in front and gives you support and help to go through that. And you basically can give us a, a Docker image that you would like to use. You can also give us a Docker file that we'll build for you. And then you can configure the tasks that, that you want to run and they'll behave. As I just mentioned, they can be pre-built um, or run on, on startup. So it's basically like VS code in the cloud. Does this mean that all of your plugins that you're already using are work? Like how much of your local dev environment can you bring to this cloud interface? Mm -hmm. So the cool thing is, it's not just like VS code in the cloud. It is VS code. It is actual proper VS code. And we recently launched open VS code server which is um, sort of an adaptation to make this, like the, to go the last mile to make VS Code run in the browser. And so the, the VS Code team has done a great job at enabling this over the past few years. It's just that there are a few bits missing to, to go all the way. And this is what OpenVS Code Server does. And what you get within Gitpod is essentially a version of OpenVS Code Server. So you can expect that pretty much any OpenVS Code extension will work. I say that with a word of caution, you know, it never promise absolutes. There is a, a caveat to this, and that is that the uh, license conditions, or the terms and conditions of the Microsoft Extension Marketplace prohibit that someone uh, downloads an extension or that someone connects to uh, that marketplace unless it's one of Microsoft's products. And so even if you build an open source extension and, uh, you know, it's all your code, at uh, the moment, it's distributed through the VS Code marketplace or extension marketplace. No other product can connect to it. And to solve that conundrum, uh, long a while ago, actually, we've launched the OpenVSX project, which is hosted by the Eclipse Foundation. And that provides sort of a true open platform for folks to bring their extension. And uh, that's also what we connect to. So you might not find every single extension that you're used to because it's not quite as complete as what the Microsoft marketplace would be. But that's a good uh, reason then to nudge your favorite extension maintainer and be like, hey, you know, do you want to push that there um, and put that on, on that platform? Speaking of market pressures from Microsoft, <laughs> so 
GitHub has a similar project called GitHub Code Spaces. Uh, I'm not sure if y'all got chairlocked or if if the two were sort of in development at the same time. But what's the overlap there, and and how do you how do you differentiate? Yeah, so there's a good bit of overlap. And when they came out and we saw their messaging, we were super happy actually, because they they validated so much of we have been pioneering the years before. So Gitpod's been around for like the Gitpod project has been in development for three and a half years at this point. We haven't been public for all that time, but you know it, it's been a long time coming. And so some of the concepts that, that you'll see in code spaces now are actually things coming out of Gitpod. Like, for example, pre-builds is, is something that, that code spaces is also calling that. Uh, and so it's really awesome to get that amount of validation. And at the same time, Microsoft clearly has much more reach than we do. They'll do a ton in, in educating the market and in telling the world that this is the next way, the next big thing for how we're going to write software. And, they just make the the cake so much bigger, right? They uh, they they sort of really lift the tide. And in terms of differentiation, so the first thing is we're not Microsoft, and that is a big point, right? So there is a big market yeah, also yeah. for for folks who who cannot or don't want to use Microsoft products. Another big differentiator is you can you can self-host Gitpod. You don't have to use SaaS. You can run this in your environment, and there are a lot of good reasons where where you'd want to do this. For example, if you're in a heavily regulated industry and you might not be able to use SaaS products per se, then this might be something you want to look at. And lastly, um, we run on containers versus VMs. And so um, the the pricing and the the cloud density that we can hit is, is much better. We're also a Kubernetes application. So uh, we are very close to home for a lot of folks out there who run on Kubernetes. There is, if I may add, uh, there is a a good comparison page that we put up that compares code spaces to Gitpod and and tells the story. We also sent them a cake. Uh, you know, congrats, you, uh, nice. welcome to the party. Uh, we haven't heard back yet how well it tasted, though. Um, still trying to get, reminds me. Uh, that reminds me a little bit of like uh, the Firefox and Internet Explorer sending cakes back and forth for releases or whatever back in the day. So yeah. you have a you have a good you have to. A, a good healthy view of the competition. So it's, that's good to hear. Yeah. Personally, if GitHub Sherlocked me, I'd, I'd be a little nervous, but good that you guys are taking it in stride. Yeah. You know, I, the way I see it there, there are only uh, two ways you can take this because we, we, cannot prevent that from happening. We don't want to prevent this from happening because it means, you know, that we're doing something right. If, if others, especially at the size and, and also insight into this landscape, like Microsoft come along and build something that is very, very similar to what we have. That just means we're doing something very right. Uh, so that's an excellent thing. So this is one way to take it. The other would be to, I don't know, go in a corner and, and it, it be in despair. But what's the point in that, right? Uh, we're, we're just at the beginning of, of really an unfolding landscape and this uh, amazing next thing that's coming. So it's, it's really exciting, actually. Yeah, and the way you guys are approaching it is pretty commendable too. Like you have so much of it open source. It's like, it's almost a little crazy at some point. The one you already mentioned, OpenVS Code Server, it seems like that's like the critical bit of technology that like your competitors could basically take and create their own version of Gitpod. Uh, where was like the reasoning behind releasing some core bit of technology like that to open source? Yeah, so we want um, 
there are a lot of good use cases for VS Code in the browser that are not necessarily Gitpod. So you could think of, I don't know if you're aware of, of Eclipse Thea, for example, which um, is also an, an online ID that actually we uh, created as well. Like the, the folks that, that created Thea now work on, on, to some extent, on OpenVS Code, the server. Those products are very useful if you want to build an IDE, like specifically a sort of tailored or, or, uh, or white-labeled IDE in the cloud. And then these products are very helpful. Now, if you wanted to build Gitpod, um, from own experience, I can tell you, building something like that is not something you do in an afternoon. Right? <laughs> There's a lot that goes into making it reliable, making it quick, making it versatile. And also, for example, what we're essentially offering is arbitrary code execution on, on a multi-tenant Kubernetes cluster. And if you hear this, you know, all your alarm bells should be ringing, like, why? And so you can imagine <laughs> securing something like this also takes takes a good bit of work. So I'm I'm not too concerned that, that tomorrow someone's going to come along, take OpenVS code server, slap it on a cluster and and have a product that we'd be worried about. I think that's that's a bit of the, the I don't know, it's a bit of an open source fallacy that some people fall into sometimes that it's like, oh yeah, you know, you do open source this thing and it's like it's easy for someone just to replicate your entire business. If your business is that simple to replicate, you're going to have trouble regardless of whether you open source it or not. Um, you know, the the big, I think the big risk ultimately comes from very large corporate entities. So, you know, like already, you know, competing with, with GitHub or Microsoft in this case, you know, you have that sort of uh, uphill battle already. But um, yeah, I don't know. It, it seems like there's a lot of upsides to, to open sourcing. So I definitely commend that too. Yeah, there are a lot of benefits that we're seeing. And we're seeing some awesome contributions coming in from the community. We're seeing a much more increased feedback coming in. And also, it's really been sort of transformative to how we work internally. You know, before that, there was always the question, what can I share? What can I not share? Um, and you you sort of had to be closed by default because our, our code was was closed. And when we changed that, we also changed to an almost open, not almost, to an open by default model, right? And that really changed how, how we would speak internally, how we would discuss things and would also improve culture a lot because now you could write things down on public issues, which before you couldn't do. So by and large, it's, it's really been, been beneficial all around. Yeah, Artsy, the last organization I worked at, had an engineering principle of open source by default. So most of their systems were, were all open sourced and it did provide a really interesting touch point to be able to say, hey, look, here's a production example of a GraphQL server and the, the challenges you might run in with it or something like that. Whereas like mm -hmm. other times you just get these like very tailored examples that's hard to, you know, you know really dig into. But yeah, I, I like that a lot. Well, just one more question on the open source stuff. So like I saw that like literally there's like Gitpod, the repository is open source. And it seems like your business model is uh, uh, self-hosting. Like you still charge for the self-hosting. There has to be like some part that isn't open source because your, your source code is right there. Could I just run Gitpod on my own hardware and totally sidestep uh, your business model? The Gitpod that you would install as... Um as self-hosted follows a dual licensing model. And also the code that we have in the repository has a dual licensing model. The large, the overarching amount of it is, is AGPL. 
And then there are some bits that have uh, the GitPod Enterprise license attached to it. And so when you install a build that comes out of this repository, it will have some of this enterprise license code. And this will show up at runtime at some point. Like you'll, you'll run into certain things like limitation on users, for example, that, that you can have on, on your platform or uh, certain features that, um, you know, that, that you might not be able to use to the full extent. And at that point, you'll see a friendly pop up that goes like, Hey, it's cool. You're trying this. Please keep going. But also you might want to send us an email. Let's talk. Okay. Cool. That said, also, like one thing that we're seeing is if, if you're a larger organization and you're looking to adopt something like Gitpod, then chances are you'll want someone on board who, who can help you do this. And so we're not a consulting company, but of course, you know, if you have an interest in, in adopting Gitpod, we'll try and help you do it. Let's switch over a little bit and talk a little bit about you. So you have a PhD in HCI, human computer interaction. Is that true? Yeah, that is correct. Yeah, that it almost feels like a form of life now. It's something so different to to what's happening today. But yeah, what sort of what led you down that path? It's a fun story, actually. Um, I I did a did an internship in Palo Alto about ten years ago, and my flatmates he did a he did a PhD uh, in Germany as it happened, and his supervisor came over at some point on a way to a conference, crashed our couch for two weeks uh, for days. Sorry, excuse me, two days. <laughs> and I uh, was like, hey, so, you know, if, if you're back in Germany, hit me up. Uh, let's talk. And I did that. One thing led to another, and I found myself in a PhD program in the UK. I was just writing writing my thesis, like my my, uh, my bachelor's thesis there, actually. And they had an open position, applied. They took me. And that's how that happened. For our listeners who might not know what human-computer interaction is, what is that study? Human-computer interaction is the study about, well, as the name implies, humans interacting with computers. And sort of in the early days, it was a lot of, and today there's still a large area that, that looks into, for example, input modalities like pointing, the mouse is something that, that essentially came out of this, text entry on all sorts of devices, cross-device interaction is a big topic. Mixed reality is something that, that's seen a lot of uptake. And it, it sits right at the intersection between computer engineering, I want to say, design, and psychology. So it sort of tries and bring those together. And they're always... Uh, in that sense, it's a bit of DevOps, like DevOps, you know, that those coming from Dev going into Ops, and there are those coming from Ops going into Dev. And it's kind of the same thing here as well, that those coming from, from any one of those areas moving into the other and sort of dabbling in the other. And so there's a lot of cross-pollination. It's a really interesting field. The largest conference in the area is called Annually. It happens annually. They also publish a YouTube video usually on sort of what the projects are. And uh, there there's so much cool stuff that, that people build uh, and, and come up with. Cool. I'm gonna have to check that out. I really, I really like this space a lot. So, just digging into some of the stuff that you've written about. So, I, I'm, I'm also into to 3D printing and laser engraving. Uh, fabrication's pretty fun. And you did two papers that were really, really interesting. So, reform, which, it, it, if I understand correctly, it's like a way to say you have this digital model, you fabricated it via like 3D printing or something, and then you edit the model in some way alter the model and then you're able to sort of map that back to the original 3d uh, representation which which seems pretty cool and then you have another one i think it's the uh, spada 
which is so far as I could tell a caliper that like syncs up with its digital rendition. So if it's like, I can imagine, you know, you measure a cube in in reality and then that same measurement shows up in, in fusion 360 or whatever your software you're hooked up to. You want to talk a bit about those? Those are both yeah, really sure. cool projects. So uh, let's talk about Spada first because that's the more pragmatic one of the two. So what really happened is I found myself designing a lot of things exactly in uh, at the time Inventor, actually. So, that, you know, that was before the days of Fusion, really. And what I found happened a lot is that I would take up calipers uh, or even protractors to measure an angle, you know, pick up the, the thing I was measuring, measure it, put both down, remember the number, go to the tool, enter the number, and, you know, have a lot of context switches like this. And so the idea was, well, how, how can we make that easier? And uh, as you said entirely correctly, it's essentially a pair of calipers that are synced to whatever design software you're using. And so one thing that we did is um, we sort of added a bunch of flows that you would do regularly, for example, measuring a cube. And we tried to minimize the context switches that you needed to do, you know, going back and forth between your keyboard and the calipers. The other thing that happens a lot when designing things, especially for novices, is that it's really hard to gauge size. You know, you see something on a screen, but you don't know how large is this going to be in the real world. And so one thing that those calipers, and there was also a set of protractors that could do the same for angles, did was it would sync in both directions. So not only could you enter something into the computer that way, but also you could measure something in your CAD model, and the protractor would move to the distance that you just measured virtually, and so you'd get a sense of how large something would be. So that was Sparta. Reform was really an interesting project. Like it, it, it started off like a benign idea, and like so many things where you don't fully understand the complexity of things, you go like, yeah, it's going to be easy, I'm sure. It took a year to build. So... Um, what it does is it's a similar idea to Sparta in that it, it synchronizes things between physical and virtual, except it does that with an entire model. So what we ended up building is essentially a five-axis CNC machine, completely underestimating the complexities of five-axis path planning. So in the end, we basically used only three axes of it. And what it would do is it would 3D print using a special clay that is malleable when it's about 35 to 40 degrees and that you can cut into, uh, and it won't clog up your tools when it's colder than that. It's uh, stuff that's used in the automotive industry for exactly this application. So they have massive machines where they sort of extrude this stuff onto formwork and then uh, onto a skeleton, and then they'll use a CNC to refine it. And we did the same thing. We would print out a model, refine it using the CNC, and then you could take it out. You can, you know, you could try it out. For example, if you wanted to design a, a game controller or something, you could put your hands on it and see if it fits the ergonomics of your hand. You could also then, you know, shave away a bit, stick it back in the machine, and we'd have a 3D scanner that would essentially take a scan of this model, store that. So you'd also get a history. And that's a really cool thing. You also get physically undo, physical undo. So, you know, you, you pull this out of the machine, you try it out, you accidentally uh, damage a button that you had on it, you put it back in the machine, you go and undo, and it will restore that button. Right. So that was the concept, that was the idea, and then sort of we tried to see, can we make this a reality? And the short answer is uh, yes-ish. Like, it, it worked all right. It worked well enough to sort of describe the concept and illustrate the idea, but to make this something that you would actually want to use 
every day, we would have needed considerably more engineering efforts. But it was a very cool project, learned a ton. That was really fun. It's just showing the feasibility of that is, is pretty wild. I find that that's often the hardest thing it, moving from like sort of digital to physical back and forth is, is the thing that like is, is fairly distracting. I mean, it's the hardest yeah. part of the process. It's like, you know, uh, well, one, just trying to measure something. Like there's a lot of things that are hard to measure and get good angles on, you know, that's, that's the whole mm -hmm. thing. And then replicating it in digital space. So um, yeah. all the work that I see in this, this space of like trying to bridge the two is, is pretty cool. There was one other project that we had that I that I like even a bit more uh, called MixFab. It's essentially Microsoft Research a long time ago, about yeah nine years ago. They had a paper called Holodesk, and you can think of it as a, a screen at a forty-five degree angle, a half mirror underneath. So it would basically mirror that screen plane into sort of a volume below. Combine that with uh, with a depth camera the good old connect in, in the days and uh, put some gesture recognition in that you would have a you would have an interactive space that you would basically look through this half mirror into this volume and if you combine that also with head tracking you get a pretty good illusion that uh, you know you can actually interact with physical objects in this space and so we built something like that combined that with also sort of basic drawing recognitions uh, on sort of the, the floor of that machine and so what you could do is you could draw basic shapes, you could extrude them into 3D space, and you could take physical objects, place them in there, and let them interact with the ones that were virtual, right? And you could you could capture the shape of them in some not very high resolution, but uh, you could do that, and then you could move them virtually around, make cutouts, and so forth. Uh, and in the end, you would 3D print the thing. And we ran a study with folks who had never done cat design or anything like it, and they were able to design pen holders and things like that without any without much prior training like they had seen the machine 15 minutes later they were able to to build things that we had done 3d printed that was really cool that's magic that is magic waiting for the day where it, it feels more like physical manipulation of digital things that like yeah 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 having awesome. them blur is really exciting They've been making progress on like the viewers. Like, I don't know if you guys have seen the looking glass, uh, mm -hmm. little device. It's amazing what that thing can do. I've only ever seen pictures of it on the internet, but it looks, it looks wild. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to see one and for real, like the videos and the other pictures look some, look amazing. So circling back to Gitpod now, human computer interaction and like kind of making those feedback loops shorter seems to translate to, to Gitpod, where you're trying to do the same thing, but for development workflows. How has your experience in human-computer interaction influenced your work on Gitpod? So the, the theme is a, is a similar one. It, it's all about reducing barriers to entry. It, it's all about making it easier for folks to getting started. And much like, you know, to do 3D printing, Today, even still, you need to learn CAD, essentially, if you want to get into writing code. And even as a seasoned, experienced programmer, you still need to, or developer, you still need to, um, you know, go through all the faff of setting up your tools. And sort of reducing that friction, I think, you know, that's the common theme here. In terms of of methods and, and thinking, uh, probably the one lesson that, that I took from that time is 
solve for specifics first, do that two or three times, and then generalize. Don't generalize from the get-go. You know, don't try to, like, you have that specific problem you want to solve. Don't solve the generalized version of it and treat what you actually wanted to solve just as a special case. No, solve the special thing, solve it again, see what the commonalities are, and then abstract over that. And I think this is the, the biggest lesson I learned from, from that time. Some good practical advice. There you go. Don't over-abstract. <laughs> do it yep. once, do it a few times, then find your abstraction. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, don't over don't abstract too early. I've I've found that too. Uh try to write everything twice, the wet methodology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Continuing on that topic of shortened feedback loops, another one of the features of Gitpod is the ability to collaboratively edit side by side with your coworkers. This is a pretty powerful concept. Do you think this this way of working will kind of change the way we code, being able to do it this, at the same time uh, in the same space so easily? So th there's definitely a lot of potential in that. It it's interesting, like a year ago or two years ago, I would have said, yeah, this is definitely the thing. Frankly, now, you know, with uh, with the pandemic and, and more and more folks going remote and also spending more time zones, and that's something that, that we've also gone through internally, I would say that, Sort of the uh, the asynchronous sharing features that GitHub provides are almost a tad more interesting, at least to me personally. So, for one, being able to solve someone's setup problem without having to be in the same time zone, you know, because I can make a commit to my repository and I essentially, you know, make their day because when they wake up, their problem is solved. That really does a lot. Also, you can share snapshots of a workspace. So, you know, if you want to demonstrate something, you, you prepare that, you create a snapshot of that, you send them a link, they open it, and they get a state on their own that they can experiment within. Those features are, to me, really, really exciting. You know, I, I can't just pack my laptop up and send it, send it somewhere else, but I can do that with my workspace. That's awesome. And so for the collaborative editing, there we're, we're still in the beginning, sort of building this out. Um, you know, the, we haven't sort of, we haven't built out the, the deep integration on, on collaborative editing yet. Uh, this is something where we, where we have an internal discussions on how we want to do this. And there are a lot of interesting edge case questions also that, that you'll want to answer, you know, like shared terminal access and things like that. So, um, that's something that, that we're building out more on. I think in, when you work with someone else, the, the async bit is really nice being able to, to attach a, a snapshot to, um, to an issue on GitHub, for example, and be like, all right, you want to try this out, you know, click here, this is the state, uh, I think is is the more powerful feature in my mind. It seems like it could have implications on things like mob programming. Like if you're doing like a large refactor and you're like, hey, can you come and hop on and s s change some imports with me for like an hour? It's, it seems like that could be a cool way to work. Sharing just becomes easier, right? It's, um, I mean, it's, it's almost a tautology here, but it, it does change how, um, how you do things because, um, you know, giving, giving folks access also to intermediate states that you wouldn't necessarily want to commit back just helps a lot. The GitHub integration seems pretty cool. Like how you can just like open up a repo. Does that extend to a pull request? Like if I open up a pull request, do I automatically get a workspace that like a reviewer can come in and just click on and spin up instantly? Absolutely. So when you, we're, we're trying to be very context sensitive. So if you do this on, on a pull request, 
um, you know, you're going to have the correct branch checked out and, and uh, you're going to see a pull request view also with sort of comments that came in and you can fill in the comments from within the workspace also. So when you want to review stuff, if you open a GitHub workspace on a on an issue, we'll already have a, a branch provided. So, you know, with a branch name that, that you then can push up. If you do that on a repository that you don't have, uh, that you cannot push to, and you, you try, we'll ask, hey, do you want to create a fork and then pr uh, produce a pull request for that? Um, so we're trying to be really context sensitive. Um, and that's not just on GitHub, right? So that also works on GitLab. That also works on Bitbucket. So Gitpod's a pretty interesting paradigm shift. And I feel like there's a lot of those rather compelling paradigm shifts happening, especially around the, the space of, of collaborative editing. But what do you think is sort of the the next evolution of of computing? If you if you like zoom out from like where we're at now and sort of think forward a little bit, like how do you see things like continuing to evolve? I have to think about that for a second. Go for it. It's a meaty question. I don't know if I'm uh, tall enough to to speak for an entire industry. I don't think so. Um, I I can tell you where where I would like to see it go. It's really two things that I'd like to see happen. One, ever more increasing cross device interaction, which is something that you know Apple is doing a pretty good job, frankly, at at, at pushing that. And that's you know the only ecosystem. It's it's a natural thing to do. But I I'd like to see that across more more systems. And shameless plug in that sense, like Gitpod does a step in that direction also, because, you know, you have your workspace running in the cloud and you can use that from your laptop. You can use that from your iPad. You can use the very same workspace from both devices at the same time. So, um, but I'd like to see that extended more. I'd like to be able to like, you know, I have a, I have a photo on my phone and I, I want to send that to someone. It's like, yeah, I can click through all the sharing things, but why can't I just, you know, hold my phone there and, and swipe it across to something. And, all the, the prototypes for, for techniques like this exist and have existed for, for many, many years in, in research, but none of them have seen the light of day on a commercial setting. So that's something that I'd really like to see. And the other is sort of what we just spoke about, the, the entire sort of cross uh, or mixed reality interaction side of things. So, you know, the HoloLenses and so forth really sort of enhancing the things that we do. There is a lot of potential for really helping in potentially subtle, but really meaningful ways. Like I enjoy woodworking in my spare time. Um, there, you know, just, just being able to, to look at something and knowing how big something is without having to pull out, you know, look for my, go and look for my measurement tape and, and measure that things like that, or having plans, step-by-step -step directions, you name it, or also a warning, hey, uh, you know, that machine is still running, it's just you're not hearing it because you're having hearing aids on, or like ear protection on. All those kind of things, there, there's a lot of very rich sort of interaction that we could do that I think would be really exciting. Yeah, I've been a magic leap geek for a, a while. Like, I... I cannot tell you how many times I went and checked the subreddit before it was actually released, seeing like, what's the news? What's the news? It's it's just such an exciting way for computers to go. Like, I, I can't wait till AR is just like the default and you can like look around mm -hmm. and it's the world comes alive with information. Having computing more embedded, you know, like I, I'm all, I'm ever so fascinated when, when folks nowadays pull out a smartphone and, and just interact with it as if it were the most natural thing in the world, when in reality, it's really not, right? You have this flat 
pane of glass that gives you very little sensory feedback on what's happening. You have very little sort of affordances and signifiers to tell you how to navigate this world. And yet it's become sort of, you know, if, if the internet's not working, it's like the electricity has gone out. And I'm really excited at, at seeing this become more and more reality, sort of Mark Weiser's become vision sort of um, becoming more and more where, you know, computing just becomes permeates things when you're not necessarily aware that that's happening. Um, not in the creepy way that this could be used, but like in, in the positive enhancing way. Yeah, definitely think a, a big thing sort of in the way of that vision that we have to, to get across what it is like to, and it, it's a basic computing issue, right? Inputs and outputs. It's like, how do you make inputs and outputs less intrusive? And, you know, AR, the hope for AR is is that where your your outputs, your what you see is is like a little bit closer to you, whether it's in glasses or in future land and like contact lenses or something, you know, it's like you're able to sort of see this enhanced rich reality. But I think input is actually a really rather hard problem. It's like how do you uh how do you communicate with a device? Um you know, voice only takes you so far, uh being like Typing is a, is a thing that we've done for, for many years now, but like, you know, it's a rather cumbersome medium. So, um, you know, what's the, what's the next step there? You don't yeah. want to be standing in public spaces, gesturing like, uh, yeah. Mi minority report. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. If, if you want to wind up an HCI researcher, you, you ask them about minority report. <laughs> there are a lot of things that are wrong with that. Now, I think in, in terms of like computing and tools, like, you know, this being a, a tools, podcast essentially uh, something that that we need to get better at also and this goes for for dev tools like gitpod also is we need to make them proper tools and what what makes a really good tool is when you think of a pen right it's probably the oldest one of the oldest tools we know and what makes it really good is that you don't have to think about it you, you think when you use it you think about writing you don't think about the pen in your hand and with computing i often feel that we still have some way to go on that you know the tools that we're using still occupy often occupy a lot of our our mental space and you know make themselves too known and we have to blend them more into the background where you almost forget that they're there but you notice they're not uh, you notice them when they're not yeah absolutely absolutely hope for a better future indeed so my first tool tip is really just one tool tip. It's two tools that go really well together. And I've used them a lot in the past to help me debug what's in my bundles. And really, if you're even just learning what Webpack does, I think it's super valuable to have this plugin running so you can physically see what your bundles look like and you get a much better understanding of what's actually going on. So this first uh, tool, which is a pretty widely known plugin, but it's Webpack Bundle Analyzer. And what it gives you is this nice tree view of all of your web pages dependencies and how they're actually chunked by Webpack. So it's super easy for you to go, oh, I see there's a whole bunch of React DOM in my bundle, or I'm accidentally including all of Lodash instead of just that one function that I want to. Where this tool kind of falls short is why. Uh, why did that thing make it into my bundle? Like you might see the every Lodash functions there, but but where was that imported? Uh, 
Or if you have this huge application with all these dependencies and a complex model, where did that one, one file get included that blew up your bundle? And that's where this second tool comes in. It's an oldie, but goodie. Like it's, it's been around since, uh, like it's been around for years in Webpack. It looks like it's an unmaintained repo, but it isn't. It's that like missing tool of Webpack Bundle Analyzer where you can see, oh, here's this file. Here's every file it depends on and everything that imported it. And you can easily walk back up to the tree till you get to a point where you're like, oh, it's that that's importing it. And maybe I should put a pure comment there. So if you're ever trying to debug your bundles or even just trying to learn Webpack, these two tools can really help you understand what's going on. Yeah, so it shows you all the modules. It gives you this nice uh, little little uh, graph viewer that I don't really use too much, uh, but it's useful when you, you like click on one of these modules and you can see, oh, this one was was imported this way. And then you just keep walking back up the tree and you can see all how all the files interconnect. And it's, it's super helpful. For Descript, the page that I work on, I got it down from like, megabytes and megabytes of javascript down to just a few hundred kilobytes using these two tools and just iteratively going through picking a dependency then going to webpack analyze and walking back up the tree the web thanks you <laughs> yeah it's it's crazy how much extra javascript can be in, can get included when you're not looking so my uh, first tool tip of the day is this tool that was recently renamed it's con k-o-n-n um it used to be called Kant, which is, uh, you know, a tricky, uh, a tricky library name. Uh, so Khan is a setup tool for Jest. Um, so essentially what it does is it allows you to have shared setups between tests. So imagine that you are using... Oh, like playwright to open a browser and poke around on some stuff and, and several tests. So this allows you to create a provider, uh, for playwright. Well, they provide a provider, but anyway, it'll do the setup and automatically configure your like before each or before all statements. And you can use that pretty simply to sort of share, uh, these, these setups between tests. So, you know, it'll handle setting things up, tearing things down, ensuring everything is, is like how you want it. Um, so if you're, you know, running fairly complex tests and, you know, I imagine something like auto could potentially benefit from this, where you have to do a lot of setup of a lot of like different libraries and stuff. So anyway, yeah, just a, just a nice little utility to make, um, sharing setup for, for just tests a little bit easier. This is actually built by the Prisma team. So kind of cool. I might take a look at this. I have a task of adding automation to our, our pages and uh, it requires lots of setup and teardown. So this might be something that I actually use. Yeah, this is very similar to a library in the like Mocha ecosystem called Fancy. Uh, does a very, very similar sort of thing. All right. My first tooltip is a little tool called JumpCut, and it's essentially a clipboard history for macOS. Um, that pretty much describes what it does, but it's it's super useful because I've developed habits where, you know, I need to copy different bits from, from one page, 
Um, and I'll just do several copy operations after each other. And then I'll go to the application. I want to paste that in and I'll just do several paste applications uh, in a row. They recently added a function that I didn't know I need, which is to remove things from that history, which is super ha handy. If you, you know, copied an API key, you don't want to keep that in your history. Handy little tool works a treat. Really makes my, my life easier. Nice. Love it. Does it make your clipboard into like a stack? Exactly. Yeah. And you can navigate that stack. Like, uh, so it's bound to command shift V and then you can use the arrow keys to navigate, uh, or you can just, uh, hit command shift V several times and it'll go back in history. Um, and you, you get like a kind of tooltip, like a on-screen display of what it's going to paste. Um, so that it helps navigating and you also have, there's some, there's an icon up in the menu bar that gives you the history. Yeah, I've heard many, many a person say that uh, clipboard history has changed the way they use a computer. I, I still need to get on, on board. So I might try this one out. Okay. My last tool tip of the day is, uh, so in messing around with my bundles a lot, I came upon an article and a few tweets about how some people have started to split out their bundle. And instead of having a vendor chunk for all of their dependencies, they will create a chunk for each one of their dependencies. And uh, this may seem like way, way too much overhead at first, but the reason they do this is because then each one of your dependencies is independently cacheable. And how often are you changing your dependencies? So in theory, this could save a lot of bytes over the wire because most of your dependencies will just be in cache rather than actually needing to be requested. The first time I got introduced to this concept was through uh, Ryan Florence on Twitter, and he was talking about how they did this for Remix. Apparently they don't do it anymore, but they want to get back to that. It just seems like an, an interesting way to do things. I don't know how how pragmatic this is in, in the real world. It requires that you have HTTP2 on. And uh, one of my coworkers brought up that cache performance may not be as good as you think. Uh, apparently your browser cache can actually be slower than the network sometimes. So utilizing this technique may not lead to the best results, but uh, I still think it's interesting. You know, something to be said, especially if your your assets are coming from a CDN, then you know it's still it's still a bit of a shorter hop than it would have to do. So, yeah, the cache not performing as well as network though that is just like a a hard concept to wrap my mind around. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I haven't uh, I haven't heard about that before, but yeah. I'll post an article in the show notes, but uh, it's it showed that as like once you got over like fifty things that were cached, the performance of the cache retrieval like greatly degraded. That kind of thing is a little bit of a moving target because it's an implementation detail of the browser that like performance envelope of of cache access or whatever. So it'd be something that if you were making architectural decisions or programmatic decisions based on that performance, you need to make sure that you're continually sort of measuring the state of the state there. Yeah. It's hard. There's like, it's, there's multiple browsers, multiple yeah. computers you can yeah. run it on, like, uh, power of those computers. So it's, it's, a it's a hard problem to get around in, in the article. They mentioned that Firefox actually introduced a feature where you could race the network in the cache. And like, <laughs> they thought that sure cache was always going to win, but like an alarming percentage of the time, the network won. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. 
So at my job at Oxide, I've been doing more and more Rust recently, trying to learn more and more Rust. Um, and broadly, I have a love of all things CLI. So I've been starting to explore the Rust community to find more CLI libraries. And um, there's this Rust library that I came across this week called uh, maybe Argi or Argi, depending on how you want to pronounce it. It's A-R-G-I. Um, but it's an arg parser for Rust. It uses this like nice little CLI macro that gives you a very good authoring experience. It's like it's it's very pleasant to write CLIs with this because it, it feels very much like it reminds me a little bit of Docopt, which is a library for for generating a CLI from documentation, essentially like help text. But it, it kind of, you know, feels feels pretty terse, feels nice. Anyway, as I'm exploring Rust more, I'm seeing a lot of the magic of macros. Macros in Rust are just, like, incredibly magic. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Kind of a fun fun library. This is a weird way to, to specify flags. Like, you're just, like... Sp- putting them right in there like like this doesn't look like code that should be able to run is that like kind of part of the magic of the macro yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah i mean so you're actually specifying it in a way that would show up in help text almost that's why i was like it feels very like doc octish yeah yeah macros are, are, are absolute magic how good is the tool support for this like you know do you need do you need to go and read docs to figure out what the syntax for this is it's a good question. Uh, so the compiler will tell you if you get the syntax wrong, like the compiler is actually checking that. But as far as like autocomplete and hints and stuff, I don't think you're going to get any of that. Then you just got to write your fig autocompletion spec. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, last tool tip of the day. Oh, I interesting. pulled the bait and switch. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. And replaced this last second. And it's also called HCI. <laughs> but, but that's something completely different. So my uh, my second tooltip is something that I learned of about four hours ago, and I was pointed to this by a colleague of mine. Hi, Alejandro. Thanks for the tip. This is awesome. It's a new project coming out of Rancher Labs that uses a lot of the CNCF um, projects that are out there, like Longhorn and Cupid, to essentially make provisioning of VMs much easier. So at the end, if you have if KVM nodes that you can spin up VMs on, and they've really um, tried to make uh, a lot of the provisioning bit, bits much easier. There is apparently a good API around this. And you get a lot of metrics out of the box, which is really cool. So the integrated Grafana um, and for all of the VMs as they're being created, you're getting metrics out of the box. Uh, so that's very nice. I can't talk too much about it. I also still have to dig into this, but this looked uh, looked really, really interesting. I saw a demo today of this, uh, you know, basically sitting on on what was, I believe, an Equinox node. Um, and, um, yeah, that that's something that, that we're looking into, for example, to maybe ease previous environments where you need to spin up a lot of clusters in isolation and things like that. So looks like an interesting project. And when I saw the picture, I was excited. I was like, oh, he's sharing open source farming software. This, this is way out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would but, uh, be awesome. No, I'm sorry to disappoint then, but uh, that would be awesome, yeah. This looks interesting, too. I can see how it uh, fits fits the problems you're trying to solve. If you're wanting open source farming stuff, uh, look up FarmBot. It's like CNC mm-hmm. farming. That's It's pretty fun. I think I recently saw uh, 
like open source farming software on Hacker News. I've seen this one also. This one's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that FarmBot uses Elixir Nerves under the hood, oh. which is one of my one of my favorites. Anyway, sorry. This FarmBot seems like a great way to get, get into gardening for geeks. <laughs> Set it and forget it. You forgot to water the plants. Oh, no, wait, I haven't. Yeah, I, I like uh, home automation. Garden automation mm -hmm. is just a natural next step. Absolutely. Well, I think that's it for this week's episode of DevTools FM. Uh, thanks, Chris, for coming on. This was a, a cool chat that spanned a lot of different topics that we haven't talked about before. Learning about human-computer interaction was a lot of fun. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a blast. Be sure to follow us on YouTube and wherever you consume your podcasts. Thanks for listening.